Several writers have been concerned to trace the articulations between India's recent shifts in economic policy and changes in social life. Some have argued for intriguing connections which are sometimes drawn explicitly in South Asia between expectations of love and economic prosperity or sexuality and the wider economy. Johnny Parry's written about the contrasting marital histories of a Dalit ex-untouchable illiteral father, illiterate father and his highly educated and respectably employed schoolteacher daughter. Parry argues that marriage is rapidly changing its meaning. No longer merely a matter of the satisfactory discharge of marital duties, it's increasingly seen as a union between two intimate selves and carries a much heavier emotional freight. Parry theorises a rapid break and seems to approve of this general shift towards greater intimacy. He cites approvingly Anthony Giddens' argument that intimacy will lead automatically to equality. He draws on an opposition between the pragmatism of the older generation for whom financial considerations were paramount and the expectations he now discerns among younger people that marriage is not primarily pragmatic but it's about love, conjugality, intimacy. But when I think about Parry's example... Janaki's refusal of her rustic arranged marriage partner and her holding out for her self-chosen spouse who's educated and employed as a teacher, I discern at work not a Giddens-style search for a pure relationship but something far more complex and ambivalent, an individualised insistence upon personal choice and a clear pragmatic concern for a husband who will be a better provisioner and a more ambitious father for his children. Laura Rahern's study of shifts away from arranged marriage and towards love marriage in Nepal suggests that love and life success are very much tied together in people's search for a spouse. So the bottom line of love, whether it's permitted before marriage, as in the Nepali case, or expected to blossom after marriage, as in contemporary Kerala, is, I would argue, continuous with older forms of marriage. Sanjay Srivastava has suggested that, quote, one way of thinking about the ideas of romance and love that are congregating in the present Indian context is that they elaborate a narrative for the future development of the individual. They point to a discourse of agency that's connected to the economic but not fully reducible to it. So while certainly not reducible to economics, it's clear that a tight relationship exists between economic conditions and social attitudes towards individualism, choice and love. At the same time, I'm interested in the ways in which love is configured as a blend of exclusivity of affect, heterosexual desire and correct gendering, and thereby becomes a means of producing the gender normative, driving out and delegitimising queer gender forms and the older forms of sociality and relationship within which those forms flourished. What makes Coricord's, this is Calicut in Kerala, Coricord's Kerala Muslim families especially interesting in these discussions is their long histories of transnational engagement, which enable us to think beyond the usual South Asianist analytical frame of the national arena and the influence of colonial or post-independent state policy. In Coricord, marriage and prosperity have very clearly gone together. Korikod's Koya Muslim community is matrilineal. 
visiting Arab traders and sailors were able simultaneously to make alliance with local trading partners and take local wives. The system here of family, household and marriage are intrinsically linked into the town's history as an Arab trading port and to long-standing links with Gulf Arabs, traders and sailors, which are recorded back to the 10th century. Far from being exceptional, these kinds of entanglements are a predictable part of Indian Ocean literal society forms, as Richard Parkin's work helped me appreciate. So, unlike the majority of Indian Muslims, Calicut's Muslim community described themselves as Maramukatayam, matrilineal community, whose exclusive status is maintained by generalised endogamy. They're a trading community living around the bazaar and claiming mixed Indian and Arab descent. Arabs were very well received and respected by the Zamorin Raja, who gave them land and allowed them to settle. At that time, Arab merchants and sailors had to come here and stay for a long time. They were away from home for many months, so they married our local ladies. We did muta marriage. Any scholars of Islam in the room might be interested to note the use here in Calicut of the term mutta for these long-term liaisons, a term which belongs properly to Shia Islam and not to Sunni, and it's also a technically incorrect usage. No termination date was fixed. This was long-term marriage. So belonging to one of these matrilineal Taravad houses stands then for claims to Arab descent, and to peaceful conversion to Islam via trade with the Gulf. Tarabad's index claims to higher status than patrilineal Muslims in the rest of India. But Islam, of course, prescribes patrilineal inheritance. And this tension has only been partially resolved by a combination of matrilineal practices with Sharia inheritance. And it's becoming quite acute lately, following reformist campaigns for the adoption of true Islamic practices and the rejection of matrilineal. The residential practices in matrilineal taravads, where men have little rights or responsibilities in the property, and where they shuttle between their natal home in the daytime and their wives' home at night time, is becoming increasingly embarrassing for many men who aspire to a home of their own. Land prices and pressure on land around the bazaar, where the Taravads are, has become very intense. But it's only partly because of that pressure that many men are nowadays building homes outside the neighbourhood. Because the new family forms which are beginning to arise demand a break away from the bazaar and the past and new ways of arranging domestic space. Migrant exposure to the practices of Gulf Arabs which includes strict patrilineality and different ways of using cash and time, is undoubtedly a strong influence. The Khaliji Gulf husband, wife and kids, out in the Gulf, window shopping in the mall, picnicking in a park, having ice cream in a smart cafe, are the kinds of practices that we've seen coming into Kerala. And they clearly didn't come as part of wider Indian shifts, because they came much earlier, before liberalisation in India. They came at first as part of a self-conscious, but now increasingly confident, public performance of a modern family. Gulf Arabs who brought Islam to Kerala, and who appear in Kerala as sophisticated and wealthy trading partners, 
and now as Malayali migrants' employers and patrons in the developed consumer paradise that is the Gulf, hold considerable symbolic capital for Malayali Muslims. Gulf Arab practices are keenly observed and often emulated. Women are very important nodes in transmitting, in the intimate and segregated spaces of the home, aspects of or ideas about Arab culture, which easily gets troped in Kerala into Muslim culture. One long-standing connection comes from older women, now in their 50s or 60s, who were married to Arabs and moved out of India. These women's husbands and children have generally no contact at all with Kerala. The children have grown as Arab citizens who never visit India, barred by their fathers from acknowledging or cultivating any part of their mother's ethnic heritage. But most husbands do allow their wives to make visits back to the natal home, especially in later years when the children are grown up and the Indian wife is anyway quite likely to have been supplanted by a younger co-wife. Speaking rusty, heavily Arab-accented Malayalam, wearing unusual house dresses, often with the soles of their feet hennaed, these extraordinary women come back to the matrilineal taravads, laden with gulf gifts for the families. During their month-long visit, they hold us all enthralled with their stories of life in Araby. Another connection comes through young women who've been brought up and schooled in the Gulf because their fathers worked there and the entire family was resident. One such young woman who'd spent all her life in Saudi was an object of great curiosity when she first arrived in her mother's tarawad ready to be married. She wore her hijab in Saudi style which was approved of as extraordinarily if perhaps a bit excessively modest, but her practice of pinning it at the neck with a brooch was seen as an affectation and rather flashy. Other types of women's gulf connection come when Kerala brides marry Malayali middle-class men with family visa status and go to take their place beside their husbands in the gulf. These women slowly learn to live without the joint family in an apartment building go with their husbands window shopping in malls, enjoy eating shawarma chicken and so on. They learn to substitute their tarawad ways of organising their domestic and social life for the ways which will work in a nuclear household. When they visit Kerala, they pass back to their families tales of life in the Gulf as well as bringing gifts. At a higher level of social status, I find that families where the breadwinner makes his living through running a Gulf-based business generally maintain two homes, one in the Gulf and one back in Kerala. While the children are being put through high school or college in Kerala, the wife will be there with them. But once the kids grow up and marry, the wife will begin a peripatetic existence and she'll shuttle between her husband's Gulf house and the Kerala house where her children and grandchildren will come to spend time and visit. But even women who are married to workers doing much lower-level jobs in the Gulf often have direct experience. I've met many women who've been able, with their kids, to take a visiting visa and go to make an extended trip and spend time together as a family. <coughs> a family pilgrimage to Mecca is often part of this extended holiday and it gives a legitimising stamp to the trip. 
These women speak with great pleasure and amazement at the things they've seen in the Gulf and are, of course, far more likely than migrant residents to express their admiration for the region. They praise the levels of development and affluence. They recount how they've enjoyed observing Gulf cosmopolitanism and getting a chance to see people from other nations and continents. And they point out the range of opportunities in the Gulf for family leisure, unlike Calicut, whose beachside children's park is dusty and frankly dangerous. I've written elsewhere about the rejection by most women of Kerala's older style of purda and the take-up of the Gulf abaya. Recently, I've seen teenagers beginning to wear fashionable floor-length skirts of the sort that are popular among Malaysian young women. So the Gulf here is playing for women a part as a source for contemporary, global, Muslim fashion trends and as a filter space where global consumer goods arrive and are accessed but also assessed for their conformity to Islamic decency. The arrival of a door-to-door parcel is a moment of great excitement in any household. These parcels are couriered in from Gulf-based husbands and they're of enormous importance in evoking the love which an absent man holds for his wife and kids. Parcels contain gifts and household items which are to be put away, ready for when the couple shift to their own new house. Along with useful consumer goods, items which would never be used in Kerala, kettles, toasters, a scent. These items are able to allude to a modern domestic lifestyle imagined in the planned future small house, while being cheap and easy to buy in Gulf supermarkets. A migrant man may not be up to sending a washing machine or a flat screen TV, but a toaster is doing essentially the same symbolic work for him and his wife. It's calling up for them their imagined future in their own independent kitchen, where drudgery over a stone grinder and the cold wash tap will be replaced by deployment of consumer electricals. Gifts also, as I've already argued elsewhere, metonymically replace the man's presence. They act as extensions of his masculine power, ensuring that even at a distance from the gulf, he continues to reach into the house and family. Apart from electricals, clothes and shoes for the wife and kids, presents for everybody in the extended household, and a few luxury goods to be shared out preciously, like perfume, Parcels often contain food items. Huge tins of nido dried milk and tang orange powder are much appreciated back home and are generally shared between the entire household. But what is less likely to be shared are the special foods which are sent and are intended particularly for a man's own children. One mother told me that her husband knew that his daughter never wanted to eat breakfast. He couriered over from the Gulf a large box of cornflakes with instructions that these could be taken every morning with needle dried milk. When I next popped into the house, I saw the daughter happily eating her (coughs) cornflakes exactly as they were presented in the serving suggestion on the box, with milk and (coughs) strawberries. Eager to do that full-on breakfast, 
Her mother had visited a fancy fruit stall to buy imported fruit. Here then, it's absolutely beside the point that cornflakes are nowadays easily available in Calicut in the Christian supermarkets, or that strawberries are an outlandishly costly item. The point here is that breakfast in a Taravad means female labour-intensive fried bread and curry. Cornflakes with strawberries evokes a quite different lifestyle. These parents have, through father's gift and mother's careful attention to serving suggestion, tried to offer their daughter the very best of modern consumer treats, aimed at shaping her both into bodily strength and modernity and reworking that family unit into a very different type from the Taravad family. A small group of individuals bonded by love, where children are cherished, deserve special treats and so on, and where mothers and fathers lovingly join together in forging their small family project of future social mobility. Perhaps even more significant than the items which the Gulf brings into Kerala homes are the ideas. Migrants slog away to earn and save and take careful note of the lifestyles enjoyed in the Gulf while never participating. Everything is saved and brought home. European beach bars and beach life are ignored as utterly inappropriate. But the Arab family enjoying a KFC treat together in the mall or strolling around a park in the evening do offer a vision of enjoyment which is compatible with family life and with Muslim morality. Sociality back home in Calicut is mostly segregated. Men are out on the streets or in tea houses with their own male company. Groups of friends which last from teen years right through to death. While women mix their housework with chatting and pop in visits to relatives. Migrant worker husbands return to Kerala on leave, ready to spend money, enjoy leisure time, assert their place in the community as Gulf men with money, rebond with their family and reshape the family unit. Activities which enable them to do all these things are costly outings. Given both the cost of trips and the migrant's desire to spend time with wife and kids out of that mad, bigger Tarabad group, new forms of leisure are rising which are more intense, more luxurious and more adventurous than those older forms. Vacationing migrants take their immediate small families on tours to beauty spots like Uti where they stay in hotels. They have day trips to theme parks. They treat wives and kids to frequent ice creams and meals out. The shift towards this small family as the normative site of pleasure and companionship is clear. When I think about the four types of group that come on a Saturday or Sunday evening to Calicut Beach... Crowds come to walk, watch sunset, buy snacks and maybe go afterwards for an ice cream. A walk on the beach admiring the sea is a cheap form of entertainment available to all. Unlike those costly tours I've just mentioned, invitations to join this kind of group outing don't need to be limited. 
On the beach in Calicut, we commonly find, firstly, large groups of women folk from a Taravad. A Taravad can be up to 200 people in a joint household. Okay? We find large groups of women with all their kids. Given the size of these groups of women and the presence of many older women in the group, obviously no man is necessary for chaperone. This is a practice which is apparently long-standing. Nowadays, the crowds of women from the joint houses come from about four o'clock, watch the sunset. But women tell me that they used to come out in groups after dark to the beach, where they were screened from male view or public censure. The second type of group that we always find on the beach is made up of young men, maybe between four or 15 of them together in a group hanging out, enjoying each other's company, while they also look surreptitiously at the girls in the women groups, cruise for sexual adventures with older men, or combine both activities. Third type of group we see are much smaller groups of older men, hanging around in twos and threes, in the company of their friends. They might be walking along chatting, or they might be cruising young men. The fourth type of group we see is the nuclear family. Fathers buying balloons and paper screws of peanuts for the kids, chatting with their wives, sharing smiles at the kids' joys and antics. The contemporary thrust of shift in the family would see all the first three types of group off the beach and replaced by the last. Presumably, those older men and women in the first and third groups who currently enjoy the comforts of a same-sex group social outing, they'd have to find their place as granny or grandad in one of those nuclear family groups, or perhaps be left at home. The groups of young men, who of course are the most demonised of all those whose practices are now suddenly deemed unmodern or immoral, would have to take their place as junior males, no longer free to roam in groups and challenge social convention, but now constrained to act according to public morality and under the firm eyes of elders and in the presence of their own fathers. Presumably the women whose husbands are away in the Gulf would all just stay at home along with their children in the absence of a chaperone. A woman's brother would, of course, now be occupied with his own family. While brother and sister obligations and effective ties are energetically cultivated and expected to be intense in matrilineal Taravad living, in the new small families, a man is expected to turn away from his sister and towards his wife. It's plain that the rise of Islamic reformism in Calicut in no way forces austerity upon people, as might be assumed. So we must put aside those kind of arguments about Protestantizing Islam. Desire and pleasure are permitted. They're recognised as legitimate aspects of human experience, but they have to be negotiated within a framework of morality. And in Calicut, this, take, this is taking on a very self-conscious Islamic reformist tone. Reformism is one of the strong influences at work in this critique of matrilineal and the old-style Tarawad family. 
Reformists argue that the Taravad system fosters a lack of responsibility in men because wives and children are accommodated in the matrilineal home where mothers and brothers will see that women and kids would never starve even if a woman's husband is feckless. Reformists also object to Tarawad property being in women's names and passed down only through and to women. And reformists worry that matriliny doesn't allow for a proper, modern, Islamic moral family to grow because men are not spending enough time in the domestic space as their wives and kids. Men are out on the streets with their friends, especially between Maghrib and Isha prayers in the evening. To be sure, men are doing five times prayer, they're observing their Ramazan fast, they're giving zakat and so on. But the goal of reformism is to go beyond those formal requirements of Islam and produce a reshaped modern moral Muslim self who lives their whole life as a good Muslim. And another, though generally unspoken, fear here is also the queerness of those forms of homosociality which are permitted and made structurally feasible under matriliny. Filippo and I have argued elsewhere, not uniquely at all, that India as a whole is in a moment of transformation of intimacy, in which long-extant queer forms of desire are being purged in favour of a new hetero-imperative for the majority, and for the minority, a configuration of both global gay and ethno-queer identities. The persistence in Kerala of Coricord's rich culture of same-sex friendship, love affairs, sexual liaisons between men, is an open secret, even within the wider space of India. And this is becoming increasingly embarrassing for many. A switch to a neo-patriarchal household is one way for men to make performances of impeccable heterosexuality and masculinity. But transformation of the intimate life is not just a moral duty, it's also a part of desire for the modern. This encompasses a keen desire to assert self-respect and escape the continuing critique of those Hindu communities, like the Nayas, who abandoned matrilineal way back in the 20s and 30s. It's also powerfully shaped by aspirations towards this modern family lifestyle, which opens up new spaces, earmarks time away from the domestic for privatised consumption and leisure, as observed in the Gulf. And that returns me to the opening remarks about those explicit links that we can make between heterosexual conjugal love and economic progress. And it points towards work like that between people like Gita Patel or Sanjay Srivastava, who are thinking through the ways in which the disciplining forces which produce good consumer citizens work in the realm of the intimate. But these are not processes that proceed straightforwardly or without tensions. The style of a bride is one very clear site where these performances of sexuality, romance, morality, Islam, modernity and fashion are all straining and pulling against each other. Wedding feasts in Calicut take place in two segregated settings, women in the afternoon, men at night. 
that eases off for the female guests anxieties about being decent, like uncovering your hair in front of men. But the bride has to appear at several moments in front of male guests at the evening reception. So that necessitates a degree of care for her in her self-presentation. Women looking at wedding albums are sometimes very quick to criticise others or defend themselves for showing even small wisps of hair out of place poking through the hijab. But the hyper-modest style of hijab adopted by the most observant reformist women, like Amina, who grew up in Saudi Arabia and married back to Kerala, or Layla, who came from a Jamaati Islami family and married into another, that style was deemed by most to be way too unattractive for a bride. A bride, after all, should epitomise glamour. The reformist bride's wearing of full hijab, covering tightly and fully both her hair and her neck, is deemed by most to be frankly unattractive on a bride. The tension between that double desire for glamour and Islamic respectability perhaps helps explain the rise in size and importance of the pre-wedding, women-only hand-painting ceremony. This is generally held at the bride's home, with the women safely segregated and ensconced in the back rooms. For this function, contemporary brides can wear a North Indian-style outfit, a tight blouse with a long, full, filmy skirt layered in satin, silk and net, lavishly decorated. To be sure, a Kerala Muslim bride wears her blouse long, with long sleeves, and although it's fitted, it's not tight. It's quite different then from the classic North Indian blouse design, which has been taken up by Hindu and Christian brides in Kerala, where the blouse is very tight, very short, and has short sleeves, which makes it very revealing of body shape and leaves exposed the skin of the arms and the midriff. Still, even this Muslim chuli is a thing of utter glamour. And the flimsy translucent shawl which comes with the outfit is sometimes all that a bride will use to cover her hair at the henna hand-painting ceremony. In a women-only space, bridal glamour can be given free reign. Wedding videos are another highly condensed site where both fantasies and conventions get woven together. If the guy is working in the Gulf, which he often is, then the opening shots of the wedding video will inevitably reference this, with footage of usually Dubai, wherever he's working. There'll be the Burj Tower, the highway in full rush hour and traffic, the Corniche, the exterior of a shopping mall, and the lobby of a six-star hotel. But what's notable is that this reference to the desirable Gulf modernity and to the status of the groom as a Gulf worker is confined to the opening sequence of the video. <coughs> the video is a place where romance, Arabic glamour, lavish spending are always expressed within idioms of the local, the authentic and brought back firmly under control of the Indian moral family. Contemporary video makers take the bride and groom out to some beauty spot a day or two after the wedding and they encourage the pair to act out a fated, destined romantic connection. In one that I sat and watched, the groom was placed sitting pensively on a fallen tree trunk. 
His bride wore makeup. This is an item considered utterly haram, and she was dressed in her henna hand painting night blouse. She had her hair loose and hidden only perfunctorily under a flimsy shawl. She was made to run towards the groom, provoking some embarrassment among us women who were watching the video as we noted how her breasts were swinging for everybody to see on film. Still, no matter. The romance, the glamour, the sexuality being presented here were intended for the husband. And the video was a site where new husband and wife were encouraged to imagine themselves as filmy lovers. Rewatching another wedding video with one pair of sisters, the younger woman, the bride, whose husband by now was in the Gulf, called out, I love you, whenever her husband appeared on screen. <laughs> Not to be outdone, her elder sister, married now for 10 years and whose husband is also a Gulf migrant and comes home very infrequently, blew noisy kisses to her husband whenever he appeared in shot. <coughs> Knowing these women very well, their actions at that moment seemed to me at once ironic, sincere and expressive of longings unfulfilled. All this is radically different from the older pre-1990s wedding photos and videos in which newlyweds are not at all expected to behave like lovebirds, much less demonstrate sexual attractiveness or attraction. Giggling reluctant embarrassment on her part and tender-hearted good intention on his part are the kind of expressions I see in my collection of wedding videos from the 1980s. Poised detachment and often feigned, to be sure, indifference are what I observe in earlier wedding album photos. So this recent explosion of first love in the 1980s and now sex in the post-1990s in the wedding videos seems to me to be related to this force-wearing off of older matrilineal joint family and expansive homosociality and the energetic cultivation of the new style of heterosexuality and conjugality. The wedding videos index two major sources for these new ideas of glamour and beauty. Visual media, so Hindi movies, music videos, and what's observed from the Gulf. Malayali women and men alike are keen to deprecate the morality of Arab women. The charges made against them are legion. Some are issues concerning an alleged failure to observe Islam correctly. Calicut Muslim women do not use cosmetics, including nail polish, and are convinced that these items are utterly haram. Women explain to me that you can't do your ritual ablutions correctly if nail varnish or makeup are covering and blocking water from reaching the body. But at the same time, that critique of makeup is not simply a technical one, because after all, Islamic makeup has been invented in the booming marketplace of Islamic consumerism and is widely used in Gulf and Egypt places. So makeup also plays a part in an opposition which is drawn between women who are, in Calicut idiom, simple, and women who are not. Simple, in South India, is a positive moral attribute which becomes a widespread goal, especially, but not uniquely, appropriate to women across all the religious communities. South Indians are accustomed to compare themselves and their women favourably to certain categories of North Indian women, notably Gujaratis and Punjabis, who were accused of being 
spoilt. Makeup, smoking, drinking, boyfriends. All these kind of vices are discussed as not having yet penetrated South India. The most high-profile Arab women, with their high glamour and their easy access to freedom of movement, cars with drivers and luxury, appear as utterly corrupted and diametrically opposite to South Indians' precious and jealously defended reputation for being simple. Reformist Muslim women are those who most carefully guard their simplicity. Even Kerala's ubiquitous beauty parlours are suspect. Muslim women go no further than performing very simple, basic facial hair removal at home and putting henna on their finger and toenails. Other common accusations coalesce around an understanding of the Arab woman as not sufficiently embedded in or controlled by her family. Women told me stories which they themselves have heard from their husbands of how Arab women visit malls in order to meet secret lovers, use mobile phones to send illicit love messages, have trysts in fancy hotels and so on. And yet, Arab women are acknowledged as fabulously beautiful and glamorous. Both by nature, the pale skin and sharp features are admired, and by artifice. And it's some of this glamour that many Kerala men now wish to attach to their simple wives. So the Gulf is a site of exciting, superior consumer experiences. It offers exposure to a wider world, but at the same time it's fraught with moral ambivalence, which has to be carefully negotiated. Its glamour and sophistication is desired. How often do Malayalis lament their own self-perceived gaucheness, which they attribute to a lack of exposure? But the South Indian woman must retain her distinctive simplicity, even as she must also become more sexually alluring to her husband. Exposure to the ways of a wider world must not lead to inappropriate behaviour for Muslims. So I can see considerable ambivalence in these Calicut Muslims' projects of transformation. Another source of this is undoubtedly the double motivation behind the shift from matrilineal joint tarawads to neo-patriarchal households. The move to a small household is prompted equally by, on the one hand, a desire to emulate the non-Muslim communities, the Christians and Hindus, who are seen as modern, progressive, economically better off because they don't live in these rambling houses of 200 people, but also by a feeling that matrilineal is incompatible with a properly morally perfected Muslim self. At the same time, there's a deeper ambivalence towards life in the Tarawad. Many young women are keen to assert themselves as educated progressive mothers, moral guardians of the family, industrious helpmates to their husbands. And that empowered position is very hard to reach within a matrilineage where older styles of domesticity prevail and where women in their 60s and 70s rule the household. While women aren't expected to work for income, they're increasingly expected and want to use their time well. So Calicut is in the grip of a boom in handicrafts, cookery competitions, cake decorating competitions and public women-only meetings about matters of good domestic management or childcare. Young women enrol their kids in English medium schools, help their husbands save towards the purchase of their own home. 
dream of a future where their sons' employment horizons will spread beyond the bazaar or low-level Gulf migrant labour. Women sometimes express their impatience to me with living under their mother's roof and their desire to run their own home and be mistress of their own kitchen. They told me about the utter frustration of having to ask their mother's permission to go out of the house to go shopping and their anxiety about the depths of the love which their children feel towards grandmother, sometimes expressed in terms of a frank preference for granny over mumma. Some young women feel resentful that older women in the Tarawad have leisure and power. Of course, they make the younger women take on large amounts of the more unpleasant domestic work, like the laundry, while older women keep for themselves the more enjoyable and prestigious tasks which attract praise from menfolk, like cooking. But it's also true that many young women enjoy the matrilineal family and are clear about its benefits. They were often keen to point out to me its advantages in terms of childcare, labour and company over my own domestic arrangements. And I also heard several complaints about the problems experienced during migrant husbands' visits every two years, when women find themselves burdened by the additional energy, time and attention needed to give to the man. The tours and outings and holidays aren't always welcome either. When he comes home on leave, we have to look after the kids, do our domestic work and do what he wants as well now to please him. It's exhausting for us. We really don't enjoy these holidays. It's no leisure for us, is a typical comment. In one Calicut matrilineal joint family house, a group of women laughed and challenged me, well, so long as you've got a man's money, what else would you need, really? While the many negative and normative studies coming from social policy and development studies don't differentiate between this category of Gulf wife, it's clear that in, tar in Taravads, the practical and emotional support of sisters and mothers is appreciated and enables this particular group of Gulf wives to overcome loneliness and manage responsibility. It's interesting that the solution to the Gulf wife problem envisaged by the Indian press and social policy is an end to migration and a shift to the nuclear household where a man will take on his proper role. Many Calicut women are reluctant to move into these new houses where they'll no longer have the company and domestic help of their mothers, sisters, aunts and cousins, but where they'll be the sole domestic worker, deprived of company and now under the rule of their husband rather than their mother. One woman in her 40s looked downright miserable as she and her husband showed me round the new house that he'd just bought. He was imagining himself finally master of his own home rather than guest in his wife's Taravad. She told me that more than the increased domestic workload, she was dreading the loss of company. Her husband would be out at work, of course, for long hours and then out socialising with his male friends after evening prayer. So, quick conclusion. When Filippo and I returned for a short return trip in 2007, we found some dramatic developments underway. There had been two suicides within this tightly knit community around the bazaar, and these were of married women whose husbands were in the Gulf. These women had absconded with lovers, one as far as Bangalore, then they got caught, dragged back to Calicut. Recriminations were violent and suicide the end result. 
and some people hinted to us that these suicides were actually forced, which is quite common. A degree of schadenfreude and a clear desire to distance themselves from these transgressive women was evident in women's discussions with me about the situation. Women salaciously relished going over the details of the affairs with me, but also expressed genuine horror at these women's behaviour and at the family reactions. And there was widespread bewilderment as to why any woman would risk everything just for that thing. Romance, love, sex. Discussions of these adulterous cases also prompted women to tell me about the fact that there's been a recent spate of love marriages within the community, some of these with Hindu young men. There's a scandal in the press about love jihad. The community as a whole has begun to turn away from its usual policy of keeping all this stuff under the doormat and quiet. It's becoming such a problem that a public meeting, a family life meeting was called by male Islamic reformists to discuss how to resolve these problems. Unsurprisingly, the meeting blamed all these kind of events on the Gulf, westernisation and global media. That the promulgation of nuclear family and the rise of these ideas of love, desire within marriage might have some knock-on effects in the guise of love, desire outside of marriage doesn't seem to be considered. But I think we can see clear connections. And of course... What I've also mentioned as important, this purging of queerness, the work that's being done at the moment to bring gendering in tightly with heterosexuality is not up for public discussion at all. So men in Calicut right now are afraid, are anxious, and are seeking in various ways to exercise greater control over their women folk. And women themselves are resentful and very angry at those women whose actions are now having consequences for all of Calicut Muslim women. I heard no sympathy or empathy expressed among any women for either the runaway brides or the adulterous women. Women very committed to Islamic reformism spoke about the need for more moral, by which they meant Quranic, education to stop women doing stuff like this. Women not so committed to reformism spoke about the need for a collectivist sensibility among women in which individual women would realise that their actions are going to impact on everybody. Women strongly criticised the irresponsibility, selfishness and lack of foresight of those women who take part in romance. These women were not thinking about the risks or the future impact on themselves or others, nor were they acting pragmatically, I was told. Women would say, well, of course it's normal to have boyfriends or lovers before marriage, but to imagine that that could continue in later life is madness. The renunciation of individual desire and love in favour of agreeing to parental choice and arranged marriage is just part of your normal life trajectory. To try to make a marriage out of teenage love, that's foolhardy. As with my earlier research among rural Hindu women... Even those who'd done love marriages told me they regretted it and that the loss of community support and respect wasn't worth it in the end. And women told me that to have an extramarital affair with someone who was an outsider to the family was sheer idiocy. When you're in a taravad of 200 people, you can find a brother-in-law or father-in-law and keep it quiet. 
The example of the too free, too glamorous Arab woman appeared often as a negative example of where you might end up. Interestingly, the role of Muslim men in all this was not brought up at all in either the public meeting or in any private discussions. We have a crisis in behaviour then, leading to moral panic in Kerala. Responsibilities being placed upon women and the blames being laid at the door, as usual, of Gulf migration and the West. The cultivation of love, romance, desire, sex within marriage, on the one hand, and men's secret lives, of which MSM relations, use of sex workers and clandestine relations, on the other hand, form a part, are discussed in very restricted circles and not made part of this public moral panic, which to date addresses itself only to the Gulf, the West and women. Thank <laughs> you.